0: What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. We are going to dive deep into training and nutrition today, but I will not stop there, and I'm going to help you with all things personal development. That is my goal with the show. It's to help you develop into the best person possible. I look at this like my opportunity to coach you through these speakers. So if you are new to this podcast, do me two quick favors hit the subscribe button we drop three episodes per week on monday wednesday and friday and i want to make sure that you are up to date on the latest and greatest free content the second thing scroll down into the description and check out our top four ranked episodes by the listeners that's going to be the nutrition faq the training faq nutritional periodization and last but not least my personal journey into fitness and coaching today is a special day Um, not for you listening but for me recording Today is my birthday. It is July 24th. When you are listening to this, it is no longer my birthday. But I am recording this on my birthday. This is like one of the only pieces of work that I am actually doing today um, simply because I love doing podcasts. Um, I'm with my daughter all day, and she is down for a nap. So what better use of my time? Then answer some damn questions, but that is not all. I want to give you something for free because it's my birthday and I love to give more than I like to receive. I decided to give away something very cool, very exclusive, and very in-depth on my birthday, and that is going to be the updated and revamped version of the Nutrition Hierarchy. The Nutrition Hierarchy is a ebook that I created, I want to say three, maybe longer, three years ago. Um, And it's been downloaded by thousands of people, not just people trying to lose weight and build muscle and understand nutrition on a deeper level, but also a lot of coaches, and they have used this as something for them to help their coaching philosophy. So this is a great book for anybody who needs to learn more about nutrition for sustainable aesthetic results. So if you want to understand calories, you want to understand macros, you want to understand periodization of your nutrition, you want to know what the best supplements are and what ones are full of shit and a waste of time, you want to know more about nutrient timing and workout nutrition and all these different topics that we constantly want to learn more about and explore into some that are overhyped and some that are fundamental for success, this book covers it all. And what I did is I went back through it and I updated all the sources. So I added a ton of extra resources, links, and people that you can go follow, you can go learn from, that that have been mentors from afar to me, people that do the research, people that have really helped guide my path in the coaching career. But then I also added a ton of other resources that we have personally created over the years since we launched this book. I've updated a ton of info in there, so not only going more in depth with the information that was already in the book, but also elaborating on it deeper and changing a lot of the information because as we know, the nutrition space is constantly changing. The information and the research and the literature that is coming out is constantly evolving and new stuff is always happening. So what I did is I went over the last three years and I kind of looked at what has changed, what studies have been done, what new research is out there, what can I put into this book to give the, the reader more information, a more in-depth approach in different ideologies and different methods and different tools and different strategies. And again, just different research and information that has happened that you need to be updated on. Um, and I have also learned a ton in the last three years from us just running our business, I mean, shit, the amount of clients we've worked with in the last three years that have provided solid case studies and different methods that we've been able to implement with those individuals to get great results, it's insane. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people have come through Boom Boom Performance to get successful results. And what I did is I kind of took all these individuals, I took all these case studies, I went through all my files and folders and testimonials. And I really looked at what we have done differently compared to then, what we have implemented into our coaching, and what new research is actually practical and applicable to real-life success with dieting um, and sustainability especially. And I took all that information added into this. So this is a much more in-depth version of the Nutrition Hierarchy. It's 86 pages long. It took me a long time. I've kind of been behind the scenes, in the dark, if you will writing this and getting this prepared because I wanted to be quiet about it and then launch it on my birthday for free for you, the listener. Um, And this is just, honestly, this is just me Giving more value because you are here listening to this right now and you are here supporting the movement of Boom Boom Performance. And my goal, my sole purpose with this is really to just reach more people and help more people understand how powerful fitness and nutrition is to change their lives. Um, And we are here to educate individuals on that and how to sustain the results so that we can be in the minority of people who do not uh, regain the weight after losing it. I want people to be successful and I want people to sustain that success and this is one of my ways of doing it. So this is me saying thank you for being here, for listening, for educating with me, for trusting me. Um, and for downloading this ebook. It's going to be the first link in the description so you can scroll down into iTunes stitcher whatever you're listening to this on. Grab this ebook. It's completely free. If you are already on my email list, I promise you will not get my emails more than once. You will not be double booked onto my newsletter because I absolutely hate when I go download somebody's ebook or product, and then I get their newsletter twice a day because I'm in their list twice. If you use the same email that you've already used with me in the past, you will not get emailed twice. I promise you that is my promise to you. Um, I know how annoying that is, but go down those guides. This is un- so unbelievably helpful to educate you on how to get better results. and there's more information in this ebook than I could ever put into a single podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you go download it. And if you have any questions whatsoever, you need any more guidance, literally just hit me up, cody at boomboomperformance.com. My email is open to you and that's my word. Now, we have a QA and a today. It's Friday for you. And we have a lot of good questions. Um, these are some questions. I actually didn't do a shout out for questions. So these are ones that were sent to my inbox um, on Instagram and some that were sent to my email. We don't have as many questions as normal, but I picked a I want to say six or seven here that are very, very good. We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine questions that are a little bit more in depth and they're a little bit more case study like. And I did that on purpose because I think it'll be really cool to kind of show you guys how I would navigate these people's results. So without any further ado, one last time go grab the ebook. If you love this show, leave us a five-star rating and review. Last but not least, screenshot the show, post it on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. I want to thank you for listening it, and I want to share your story on my Instagram. Let's get on to the show. All right, the first question of today is from Lisa Perry. Uh, Shout out to Lisa. She is from Estonia. Hi, I have a few questions, and if you could answer them, I would be really appreciative. I am a new listener to the podcast, just started listening, and I'm really happy with the content, so thank you for doing what you do, I apologize if my English is off, I am from Estonia, so Lisa, don't worry, I went through and I auto-corrected anything that was incorrect, Um, not because I blame you for being incorrect, this is your second language, I speak one language, and I speak it pretty poorly, (laughs) so shout out to you, I respect you, I made those because I will read whatever is on the screen, and I wanted to make sure that I sound intelligent when I ask your question. (laughs) So I have been strength training for three to four years, currently competing in amateur powerlifting. I am a female. I have dieted down about 15 to 17 pounds for my competition. I have kept my strength and had some new PRs on the diet. Well done. Um, And shout out to you because there's a lot of people that think you cannot gain strength while dieting or you cannot – in a deficit while going into a meet and you just called bullshit on those people and you just gave proof. So shout out to you. Shout out to the people that I coach that are in powerlifting who are losing fat and gaining strength. After the competition, I have a three-month period where I would like to improve muscle mass as well as improve my strength for nationals. What approach do you advise me to take? I have thought like having one week rest after co- competition and then I will have a high-volume phase for four to six weeks where I slowly raise calories and focus on hypertrophy. Later, I would do some hybrid mix on the focus in strength. So I'm assuming focusing on strength. I need to keep my weight the same as I want to fit into the same category as I am competing now. How do you suggest on calorie intake and programming? Would this approach work? Hybrid was previously worked really well for me, but I would like to know whether this is a good method or not. So I think it really, I mean, as obviously it depends, but... It's hard to say because if you like, you have two counterintuitive statements in here and you say, I would like to gain muscle mass, but I need to stay within my weight. So it's like, if you want to maintain your weight, because you said you want to keep your weight the same, then you can't build muscle mass without cutting first. So we kind of have a counterintuitive thing here, right? If you went through a gaining phase and then try to cut down, one of two things would happen. Um, and it depends because it depends how lean you are. So you said you dieted down about 15 to 17 pounds. If you dieted down and now you are pretty lean and you don't need to get any leaner, because again, remember, we don't want to be shredded for a powerlifting meat. We want to be lean and healthy, but we don't need to be super, super shredded. We want to have a little bit of fat on us because not only is it going to help support our joints, but it's going to help support our nervous system and hormones because our body does need fat. That's why when you get shredded for a bodybuilding competition, you're not in the healthiest place. You've adapted hormonally and metabolically, and we don't want to get to that point if you are doing powerlifting. Most bodybuilders listening know that you're not the strongest when you get on stage. But my point with this is is if you're already at your leanest that you should be for competing, then you will need to gain weight, and that means you're going to go over your weight class. So you you have two options. Bring your calories up to maintenance and focus on strength and not building muscle, which you can do, Um, I've actually seen, uh, I believe, Brad Loomis, 3DMJ, Jordan Syatt, a couple other people have uh, done some really good content around basically staying lean and gaining strength. So gaining strength, not size. And this is perfect for you. And this is actually what Jordan Syatt did because he was a very small power lifter and he wanted to stay in his small weight class because he crushed it. Um, But if he put on a bunch of muscle mass, that would improve or, or increase his total mass, his weight, and therefore he would leave that weight class. So you have to think about it like that, like, okay, weigh out your options. Is building muscle mass going to help you build enough strength that you would be uh, competitive in the next weight class up? Or do you have enough body fat to where you could go on a gaining phase and then cut fat and still be at a net higher total muscle mass? So let's say, for example, you didn't give me a weight here, but let's say that you are 150 pounds for easy math. And you look at your body and you're like, I could probably shed another five pounds of fat and still compete. Well, I'd be lean, but I wouldn't be too lean to where I could still compete and perform on the the, uh, competition floor for powerlifting. Great. We spend six to eight months gaining size. You put on six to eight pounds. When you get to that point, yes, you've added a little bit of fat. Let's say you've added two pounds of fat, but the rest is muscle because you did a slow gaining process. At that point, you might say, okay, it's time to cut. I am going to cut down two to three pounds of fat. When you do that, you will still be heavier than you were before because you went from 150 to 158. You cut two to three pounds. Now you're at 155. If 155 is in your weight class, that's the smartest approach. Spend time gaining size and then do a cut a small cut short duration aggressive get after it get to your weight so you can get back to your weight class if that's above your weight class you need to make sure that you will be strong enough at 155 to be competitive at that higher weight class so think about the philosophy behind this first before you decide like what training program should i do what should my diet be you have to determine is building muscle the right move because you know there's a lot of people who are lean enough small enough and they have room to grow with their strength without adding any size um if you look at yourself and you're like i got no more strength in this size i have to build muscle in order to get stronger then and i've been in that position mm-hmm. then you have to understand that you might have to move up weight class uh, but you just got to weigh out those things because then it determines like okay how do we approach this um i'm going to i'm just going to assume that we do decide you need to build muscle and that means you are going to gain weight so you might not keep your weight the same and that's okay um what do you suggest on calorie intake and programming so there's two approaches that work really well it's, it's really hard to say, and it depends on how long you have. Did you say how long you have? After the competition, I will have a three-month period where I would like to improve muscle mass. Uh, three months is not long. That's the problem. As a female, to build muscle mass in three months, you're going with a slow gain approach. Um, but it sounds like you do have longer than that because you said three months of hypertrophy, and then you're going to go into a hybrid approach where you're doing strength and hypertrophy. I personally would say I would spend... I actually like that approach, spending four to six weeks in a high-volume phase, but I would do one-third of your volume at least, if not half your volume, coming from low-repetition, high-intensity work. So you're not solely doing, you know, eight to 20 rep ranges. You're not doing all high-volume, high-hypertrophy work. You are still doing some lower-rep intensity because I think the mistake some people make is doing a classic uh, progression model. Periodization model where we go accumulation, intensification, and then realization, peak, which is basically saying we're going to do a high-volume phase, we're going to do a high-intensity strength phase, and then we're going to test, repeat. That's great, but while you go through that high-volume phase, you actually lose some neurological strength, which comes back very quick, but then that first one to two weeks of doing the intensification phase when you're trying to regain those strength uh, numbers – you are kind of set back and you have to regain and then you can spend a couple weeks gaining. But you've now you've spent four weeks in a high-intensity phase draining and fatiguing your nervous system when you could have spent the whole entire time focusing on a little bit of strength. So if you do a high-volume phase, leave like one to two days a week of strength. So basically it would look like an upper-lower split where you have two days of high volume, two days of low volume, um, high-intensity. So hypertrophy and strength, kind of like a conjugate method. You could also do even more high volume if you really need to put on muscle mass, if that's your main goal. What that would look like is a weekly undulating uh, periodization, but the majority of your periodization being high volume. So you would spend all of week one. So you have upper-lower split. Week one, the whole entire week, both upper-lower days, it's all high volume, high rep, moderate weights, like pushing the volume for hypertrophy. Week two, you have one day. For upper and lower so two of the days in your in your weekly routine are low rep high intensity strength work kind of like a conjugate method and when we add this up over time you're basically doing two thirds of your volume coming from hypertrophy one third is coming from i'm sorry three fourths of it so if you look at a two week block you have three sessions of hypertrophy on your upper body and lower body in one session of high uh, low volume high high intensity strength so it's, it's a little bit different than the model. This is actually what I'm doing right now. And I think it works really well because it's enough strength to keep your numbers. But it's, an, it's more than enough hypertrophy to focus more on muscle growth. Um, I'm going to cut right now, so I'm not trying to gain size. But it works really well for me. And what that basically looks like is for me, I have three uh, upper-lower sessions per week and, and per me- microcycle. So if we look at – and I'm actually – this is just being uploaded into the elite so the elite members can join me on what I'm doing. But basically, we have three upper-lower sessions in a micro cycle. So you could go upper-lower, upper-lower, upper-lower in six days, like straight. And if you're in a surplus, that'll work great. The first two upper-lower days, so the first four days of your training are high-volume hypertrophy work. The last two days, days five and six, are our strength, upper-lower, low-rep, high-intensity. Then we repeat. For me in a cut, I never do six days in a row because I'm just drained. So for me, it's like, upper, lower, upper, lower, take a rest day, upper, lower, take a rest day, upper, lower, upper, lower, take a rest day, or upper, lower, rest, upper, lower, rest, upper, lower, rest, and you just keep going. So my micro cycle might be eight, nine, or 10 days even. It doesn't really matter if we look at the grand scheme of things at the end of a three-month mesocycle, let's say, I'm still doing the same amount of volume in both rep ranges. But that's a good approach for you, and you can, it's kind of like DUP, right? Like they have a three, I, I don't like DUP as much because I don't prefer full body training, I think there's, I think having upper lower focus days is just more helpful. Mentally, it's easier to focus. Um, It's easier to place accessory work in there too. And I think the high frequency of DUP can really wear and tear on your joints. Um, That's what happened to me when you frequently heavy squat, frequently heavy deadlift, heavy bench. Like, yes, it's a skill that you get good at, but if you do that for too long, I think it just wears you down. So the best approach with DUP is to go for like three weeks, take two weeks off, three weeks, two weeks off. And those two weeks off, you're just lowering the frequency to like one or two times a week. Uh, But then it's just too much change, and and there's too much variation. So I prefer upper-lower split. That's what I would go with with you. Um, You can do it as a conjugate style, or you could do it how I was just saying. So basically, you would do um, upper-lower, upper-lower. That's one week, two days of hypertrophy, two days of strength. Or you can have six days per training week, quote-unquote, which could be anywhere between seven to ten days. Four of the sessions are hypertrophy. Two of the sessions are strength. When you move closer to the meat and you want to go into this quote-unquote hybrid phase, that's when you would switch into four days of strength, two days of hypertrophy. If you were doing the conjugate method where it's evenly split, 50-50, you just keep going. There's no change because you're doing half hypertrophy, half strength, and that's even what um, the west side guys did. The only difference you would make is instead of doing hypertrophy work, when you get closer to the meet, you change the hypertrophy work for dynamic work, which is going to be speed bench, speed deadlift, um, more dynamic stuff, speed squats. Um, you could do like lunges with a step up and a high knee so you can work that explosive hip drive at the top, hip thrust, RDLs, uh, more just accessory work, but it's less hypertrophy focused, more dynamic and power focused. Um, but again, it it all depends on what you really need to work on. So if you need to work on hypertrophy more than speed, then you need to keep some speed and you can do all of this too. Like I know that I'm giving a huge answer and this is why it depends because I would have to assess you and look at everything you're doing and see where your weak points are. But if we look at, let's say that you need hypertrophy speed and strength. Okay. Well, we do a weekly undulated periodization where every single week we work on strength, but every other week we work on power, or hypertrophy. This is exactly how functional muscle two is. So every single week you work on hypertrophy, but every other week you alternate between strength and power. So week one is upper lower strength, push, pull, legs, hypertrophy. Week two is upper lower power and speed, push, pull, legs, hypertrophy. Week three is back to strength, week four is back to power, and we alternate back and forth. That's how functional muscle two works. For a power lifter, you could do the same thing, except the difference would be is the strength days, the upper-lower strength days stay every single week because that is your main focus. And then the upper-lower power or the push-pull legs hypertrophy, those alternate weekly. So you are kind of switching between those two. You're keeping them in enough and frequent enough to make sure that you are constantly stimulating for that goal. So you're constantly working towards more hypertrophy, you're constantly working towards more power, but more importantly, you're consistently staying in the strength ranges to focus on that because that truly is your thing. Um, So there's a lot of options for you. The weekly undulated periodization, the daily undulated periodization, the upper lower style training, which is probably where I would go with you to be honest. Um, Especially at first, if you really need to work on mass, I would say doing, upper, lower, hypertrophy, so like upper, lower, upper, lower, all hypertrophy, and then an upper lower of strength. So four hypertrophy, two strength in your micro cycle, which could be anywhere between seven to nine days. That's probably what I would do for now, while you're trying to build mass in the first, you know, two to three months. Actually, you said one to two. Not that much time to build mass, um, especially as a female, I'd probably extend that out. And then I would shift to a different ratio of just more strength when you get closer. As far as nutrition goes, um, It's hard to say because I don't know where your calories are. I don't know where they've been at. I don't know what type of body you have. When I work with a power lifter, it's basically, hey, I need time. So when I work with somebody who is powerlifting, we're working for six plus months together. It gives me enough time to actually guarantee results, but it also gives me enough time to learn about their body. How does their metabolism adapt to the changes I make? Um, do they have a stubborn, resilient body? Are they hormonally resilient? Are they the opposite of that and, and stubborn? Are Like w- what are we doing with their body and how is their body reacting to the things I'm doing? And then that determines how I place their calories. Uh, for some people, it's really simple. We have a very moderate spread. I don't think that we should go high carb or high fat necessarily because, you know, The nervous system functions on fat. We know that for a fact. Um, The axon, which connects into the spinal cord and helps your brain actually transmit signals, neurotransmitters, to help your body function. So if we look at how the body works, it goes from nervous system to muscular system, skeletal system, right? Well, fats actually are almost, I want to say it's 80% of the axon is literally made of lipids, which means without fats, your nervous system is not going to run very well. However, there's also data that shows hormonally and neurologically, you need carbs to thrive as well. So I don't think you can go either one way. A power lifter should have a pretty balanced diet, especially if you're doing any type of hypertrophy work. You need that for the glycolytic training. Um, so I usually tend to go right down the middle or I do a very good carb cycle where we're doing high-carb, low-fat days, low-carb, high-fat days on the cardio rest days. And we're hitting like four high-carb days a week with the training. Um, and we alternate between those. So for you, like, you know, if you had to diet down and your calories are low, your, your real thing is like let's just reverse diet you um, I wouldn't do a recovery diet. I don't think you need a recovery diet where you aggressively bump your calories up simply because if you were PRing while on the diet, that tells me you didn't take an aggressive enough approach in order to hormonally adapt in any way. And you're also probably not lean enough. I mean, if you're doing a powerlifting meet, I assume you didn't diet down to dangerous levels, therefore you don't need a recovery diet. You're going to reverse diet slowly so that you can maintain your weight till you get to maintenance. Once you get to maintenance, that's at the point that you want to slowly shift into a surplus to try to gain size. So, and this is why I would take way longer than four to six weeks because four to six weeks, I mean, shit, that's just your reverse diet period to get to maintenance. During that period, you might be able to build muscle. Um... Because my assumption is that as you dieted, you lost weight, and so your maintenance actually dropped with it. So you might actually get up to your maintenance a little bit quicker, your true maintenance. And if you get up to that point and you increase volume and you start adding things in like intra-workout carbohydrates, creatine, proper nutrient timing, better sleep, you can build muscle in that process. Once you hit maintenance, I would sit there and try to build muscle using all these little strategies I just mentioned like supplementation, sleeping, nutrient timing, volume, so on and so forth. Try to build muscle while at maintenance, and once you plateau, go into a very, very small surplus. Like I'm talking 100, maybe 200 calories, like very, very tiny. Um, And try to gain literally like a half a pound a month, maybe a pound a month. As a female, you're not going to gain a ton of weight, and you don't want to. You want to gain pure muscle, so take it slow. Um, And and the truth is is you should be taking way longer. I think anybody who is doing too many competitions in any sport – back to back or too close, you're not giving your body enough time to heal, recover, and improve performance. Because there's a recovery period of time just to get back to baseline, so that you can start planning on how to improve. And people forget to think about that. You do a CrossFit meet, you do a bodybuilding show, you do a season of football or basketball, anything like that. Um, You do a powerlifting meet, any of these things, you are in a hormonally compromised place. You are in a muscularly and a neurologically fatigued place you need to recover from that. You need to build your body back up, your nervous system back up to a point where you're at baseline. Once you are at baseline, then you can stop, periodize, plan, and start working towards gains but you can't get gains when you're in a hormonally or muscularly or neurologically fatigued place. It's impossible. So I think it's funny when people do that. So have a plan where you're like, okay, the first two to three months I'm recovering, the next two to three months I'm maintaining, and the next two to three months I'm peaking and pushing as hard as I can. Then I'm actually gonna maintain and recover again, and then I'm gonna go into my meat. It's a year-long process. Um, The only time like bodybuilders should compete back-to-back is when it's really close together and you have a very smart plan. Like I have a guy who is competing While you're listening to this, he's competing tomorrow. Shout out to Brandon Whitehead. Um, And then we have another competition in like two to three weeks after that. And then he's not going to compete for probably years, right? So um, sometimes you can do it because it's like we spent this time getting that lean. But for most people, like if it's not super close together where you can like basically just stay on that adrenaline rush and that high and that cortisol drive – you should probably take a longer off-season. So that was a really long answer, but I think it deserved a very in-depth approach because I think, you know, listening to other Q&As, listening to people give advice, this is why I struggle to do story Q&As sometimes because people give such black-and-white surface-level answers, and the reality is I can take you who just asked this question eight different paths to get a a different result in each way and the result's going to be great in any of those paths but it it depends on what you have done in the past it depends on your current physique it depends on your current abilities and it depends on how your body responds things and what you can adhere to so there's so many paths we can take uh but yeah i hope i hope that did that that question justice shit realistically if we uh if i keep answering questions in this much depth we might not get through them all, <laughs> but I'd rather uh, I'd rather go super deep than uh, surface level on any of these. All right, so we got, I believe her name is Nancy, but it's N-A underscore N-C-Y, so N-A underscore N-C, 2012. I started a low-calorie phase about two weeks ago in an attempt to lose some weight, for reference, only trying to lose the last five pounds and eating around 1,500 calories, so 1,550 calories a day, which is about a 300-calorie deficit for me. I don't feel hungry, getting at least one gram protein per pound, drinking at least two liters of water daily, working out, not drinking caffeine late, so all of my sleep hygiene stuff is on point, but my sleep has gone to shit. Can't get more than four hours since the calorie deficit started two weeks ago. Do you see this often with clients? Any tips to improve? So I uh, I definitely see a lot of people struggle with sleep when they're in a diet, but usually it's not two weeks in. Usually this takes some time. Um, I mean, it's just one of the hormonal and metabolic adaptations that occurs during a deficit. Um, Sleep is impaired. Uh, A lot of people know this when they're getting ready for a photo shoot, they're in a deep cut, anything like that. You have to start really monitoring caffeine in the afternoon. You have to start sometimes doing meditation before sleep. And you get, I mean, It's a common hormonal adaptation. We talk about um, uh, tired and wired, right? This is a easy sign that you might be metabolically adapting, which If you're somebody who's not necessarily in deep cut, if you're somebody who has been chronically dieting or in a chronic deficit or chronically trying to lose weight, but you're not really diving into the details, you're not periodizing, you don't have a coach, you're not paying attention to the small things, and you look at your biofeedback and you're like, shit, yeah, for the last few months, I'll be tired all day, I feel lethargic, and then I go to lay in bed and I'm wired and I can't fall asleep. That's tired and wired. That's a sign that your metabolism is adapting um, negatively. Now, it's part of it. So you said you know you're trying to lose some weight. You're in a you're in a deficit for two weeks. You're gonna have some more have metabolic adaptation. To be completely honest with you, if you're only in a 300 calorie deficit and you have only been in there for two weeks, that actually kind of worries me because you shouldn't have those adaptations that quick. Um, so there's a few things I'm gonna suggest to you. But what I would say is like I don't know what your weight is, um, but was. 1850. So if you're in a 300 calorie deficit, is 1850 truly your maintenance? Is that as high as you've ever been? Did you have a good biofeedback before you jumped into this diet? Because a lot of people that work with me before we kind of have to earn the right to diet, right? There's the primer phase. So when somebody starts working for me, we spend four to six weeks. I did a video on this uh, on my Instagram, IGTV. I'll post it in the show notes so you guys can see it. But I kind of talked about how like the first four to six weeks of somebody coming on board, it's like, hey, let's Let's slow things down. Let's get your metabolism up. Let's eat enough food. Let's prioritize health. Let's get consistent. Let's focus on adherence. I don't want to dive into a deficit because we need to prime your body. We need to kind of do the diet before the diet. We need to get your body ready to diet. Um, And sometimes people jump into it too quick. And if you see metabolic adaptations happen that quick within two weeks, I might be worried that that's you. Now, there's also the case where you just have other stresses in your life. There's other things going on. Uh, maybe you were a shitty sleeper to begin with. So there's a lot of things that could be happening. Now, what I would say, if you're going into a deficit, if it's an aggressive deficit, um, I would probably bump protein above like one gram. So maybe like 1.1, 1.2. Um, you're drinking two liters of water a day. Great. You're working out great. No drinking caffeine late. Great. Sleep hygiene's on point. Great. Sleep has gone to shit. My guess is, Uh, there's a few things I would try. Um, I would try shifting carbs into the afternoon for some people, you know, there's no real literature on this. There is some science that actually was just in the last episode I did. If you haven't listened to that, please go listen to it. I know sometimes people listen to the sciencey episodes and it's kind of dry, but there's so much good information in that sleep, scientist podcast. Um, and I have another guy, Greg Potter's coming on at the beginning of next month. Um, and we're going to do another one on sleep, but There's some data to show like a moderate to high-carb diet helps sleep, and I think if they ever did nutrient timing studies on sleep and they push those carbs afternoon, I think they would see that same effect because we know carbs spike insulin harder than protein or fat does. Yes, protein still spikes insulin, but carbs have a greater effect on insulin in most cases. That's going to have an inverse relationship with cortisol. So when we spike insulin through carbohydrates, cortisol drops. Cortisol dropping helps us shift into parasympathetic mode. That is rest and digest. Usually when you get into that state, you get kind of sleepy and it helps you fall asleep. It's just like when you eat a big bowl of pasta or pizza and you get a carb coma, that's why. Now, there's also studies that show this has nothing to do with carbohydrates and everything to do with calorie load. So they took people who said that they would get quote-unquote sleepy with calories and all they did is they actually just lowered their fats for that meal. And the same effect happened. They felt fine. So if you have too many carbs in a meal and you feel like you crash later on, Try reducing the total caloric intake of that meal. Drop protein, carbs, and fats. Just don't have so much calories in one sitting. Some individuals have a hard time breaking that much food down at once without letting their body drive into uh, parasympathetic mode and getting sleepy and crashing, quote unquote. So – for some people like you who are ha- having shitty sleep, one thing I would try is pushing a lot of your calories into the afternoon. This is a really good tactic for me when I am dieting as well. I will do like dinner and then like a healthy, like protein style dessert, literally back to back. Like it's like an hour, two hours apart. I'm not really focused on nutrient timing there. I'm trying to get satisfied. And it helps me fall asleep because I have a lot of protein and carbs in those meals. It helps me get go down to bed. But during the day, I keep all my meals light and it keeps me focused, basically keeps cortisol higher (laughs) so I can work, 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 think harder and just produce. And then at night, I have a lot of calories and it helps drive me down. So one thing I would try is pushing more calories, specifically carbs, but more calories in general to your late meals. Um, I would also try the little things like shutting shit down. Don't be watching TV in bed, things like that. Read or wear blue light blocker glasses. That stuff helps. Um, If you're not working out in the morning already, try starting to work out in the morning because working out does drive adrenaline and cortisol up. A lot of people work out in the afternoon. They wonder why they can't sleep. Well, you train hard and your cortisol goes up, adrenaline goes up, your nervous system gets fired up. How the hell do you expect your body to wind down and go to bed? Um, Another thing you could do is try breathing drills prior to bed. So like long inhales through your deep uh, abdominals like belly breathing. For a long period of time, hold that breath for like three to five seconds and then exhale for as long as possible, usually like seven plus seconds. Doing breathing like that shifts you into parasympathetic mode as well. So sometimes you have to do these like little cheesy tactics to try to get to sleep better. But if none of those things work and you're constantly, quote unquote, tired and wired, I would say this is different if you are fine during the day, but if you are truly tired and wired, meaning you are lethargic and tired during the day, you try to fall asleep and you just cannot fall asleep for the life of you. I would say that the metabolic adaptation inside of your diet is happening way too quick and you probably weren't ready for the diet. Um, And this is where like coaching helps because you can get a little bit more nitty gritty with things and, and really look in depth into what's going on with your body. But I mean, for two weeks, things to be happening, that's that's pretty rare. Usually it takes, I mean, a shit at least three to four weeks before we really start seeing any hormonal adaptations from a diet. B. Sensio, thoughts on intermittent fasting for female, sorry, I was looking at it and I was like, is that how you pronounce it? I was trying to think of a new way to pronounce it. B. Sensio, B. Sensio, I don't know. Thoughts on intermittent fasting for female clients older than 60 years old. I would say I'm not a fan, um, for a couple reasons. Uh, I'm usually not a fan of intermittent fasting for females. Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of intermittent fasting period. Um, reason being is because I just think that there's a lot of benefits to eating multiple servings of protein throughout the day. I don't see the point of intermittent fasting. If you really want to utilize, uh daily intermittent fasting for a fat loss strategy I think the best thing to do is do a protein sparing modified fast which is going to be having like waking up doing a greens drink and a protein shake you know it's still going to spike insulin yes you're not in a fast but we know that the insulin theory is kind of bullshit it's been busted uh, you're going to be fine if you spike insulin and still you can still lose fat it's about calories but if you have a protein shake in the morning and you have a greens drink you get your micronutrients you get your protein you're good few hours later, have another protein shake and a greens drink, you're good. And then a few hours later, you can have a full meal, work out, have a big dinner. You're still following the eat light, low calorie during the morning and the day and then having a big meal at night. And studies show that there's actually no difference on like insulin and weight loss with that. It actually works just as well horm- like from most things that they have looked into. Um, if anything, it's better because muscle protein synthesis is higher, so you're more likely to maintain muscle mass. Um, I would much rather have somebody do a modified protein sparing fast. Um, If you want to do intermittent fasting for things like autophagy or metabolic syndrome or autoimmune related issues and like just like pure health, hormonal health or anything like that, um, I actually think the best thing to do is less often fast. So do a fast at most once a week, if not every other week, if not once a month, and you're doing it for 24 to 36 hours. So like a really long period of time, you're going to get a better result. Health-wise. Now, for females, female hormones, the endocrine system of a female is just more sensitive, period. It's not as resilient as men. Sorry, ladies, but the reality is, is, is the more finicky you are with your nutrition, the harder of a hit your metabolism is gonna take, your hormones are gonna take. That's why metabolic adaptation is more common with women and reverse dieting is harder with women. Men usually respond really well to reverse dieting. Men usually don't have suffer as bad of metabolic adaptation um there's really no science to prove why um the only theory is that women have more sensitive hormones because of that i don't like doing intermittent fasting because intermittent fasting does bring cortisol higher it is a stress on the body which arguably there are some benefits to that but for women i think it's just there's just no the benefits don't outweigh the risks or the negatives with it the pros don't outweigh the cons for women um so i probably wouldn't do it um I know that nutrient timing plays a big role on circadian rhythm and body clock, and that especially applies to women with their, their sensitive hormonal system. So I, I tend to not use it with women. Um, and when we're talking about anybody 60 years or older, I tend to not want to do any of that anyway, especially without at, – at least do a modified protein spas- uh, sparing fast if you're going to because the older we get, the lower muscle protein synthesis goes. So basically, our rate of muscle protein synthesis drops, our sensitivity to protein drops, our ability to stay anabolic with testosterone and muscle protein and any of these things, muscle protein breakdown, the balance of that, lowers in a negative way. Everything about absorbing and using protein starts to decline as we age. So why would we fast and avoid having more than enough protein. Arguably, if you're training hard at the age of 60, definitely over a gram per pound. Um, unless you're obese, obviously you don't need that much. Um, more like lean mu- lean mass, maybe like 1.2 grams per pound of lean mass. And then you should have more frequent feedings and you should have more protein per meal. So I would say that like that whole like 20 to 25 grams minimum for muscle protein synthesis for at age 60 is probably going to be more like 30 to 35 grams minimum. Um, but not a fan, I don't I don't see any reason to. And even like the fat loss data on it showing uh, controlled for calories, there's no difference. And there was one study that they showed fat loss was greater in those who did intermittent fasting. They did track calories, but calories were not equated. So what they did is they actually tracked calories throughout the study, uh, but they were not accounting for them being exact. At the end of the study, intermittent fasters dropped more fat, did not maintain more lean mass, but they dropped more fat. And when they looked at calories, they were actually in a 250 calorie lower deficit. Therefore, the reason they lost more fat was simply because they were in a bigger deficit. Um, so again, there's no real reason to do intermittent fasting, in my opinion, if your goal is aesthetic purposes. Larzy, Larcy, 97. Larzy, 97. I had a restrictive eating disorder for about two years and got out of it for about, I got out of it about a year ago. Lifting helped me a lot, but nutrition is still difficult for me. I'm eating about 200 calories per day. I'm going to assume you mean 2,000 because 200 is you would wither away. Calories per day. Lifting seven times a week, especially if you're lifting seven times a week. Two days are mostly mobility and recruitment powder training. One day cardio and 20,000 steps a day do do an active job. Definitely consuming 2,000 calories a day. Do you have any recommendations on my macros and calories? Would I get better results if I ate more? I'm 70 kilograms, 185 centimeters tall, 22-year-old male. 70 kilograms is 160 pounds. I'm going to type it in. 154 pounds. So you're not super heavy, but you are young. You're 25, 22-year-old male. Um, how tall are you? You are 6 foot so you're, you're a thin dude. Yes. Crank your calories up. Um, you're a thin dude. You're 154 pounds, six foot tall. You're 22 years old. So you're young. You do 20,000 steps a day and you do seven days a week of training. couple things I would do here. This is how I would adjust everything you're doing. Um, would I get better results if I ate more? I believe we talked a little bit more on, on Instagram and I believe you are trying to gain muscle mass. So here's what I would do. Um, if you're lifting seven days a week, Two days are mostly mobility and recruitment pattern training, one day cardio. First thing you're going to do, take the cardio day out. Your cardio is your 20,000 steps a day to an active job. You are doing construction or you're a salesman walking a floor of a massive (laughs) building or some shit, but 20,000 steps a day is more than enough Neat. That's double the recommended uh, amount of steps for somebody trying to be active. So for those who are unactive and we are trying to create more activity with them, we recommend 10,000. Meaning you're doing double that. So you're already doing a ton of walking. That's your cardio, man. You have plenty of need. Take your one cardio day out. Now you have six days of lifting. Two days are mostly mobility and recruitment pattern training. I'm okay with that. However, I would probably do four hard days of lifting. And I would do one day of mobility and recruitment pattern training. I see a lot of people do, I'm doing mobility or dynamic work or recruitment pattern or agility. And they do these like, oh, that day is just this. And it's like, you're sweating your ass off. You're working, you're getting your heart rate up. It's still high intensity. So cut the shit, it's still work. Um, And I don't mean to be brutal, but like, let's be real, man. Like we need to make sure that you're not burning so many calories that you stay super thin. Um, And it's hard because you had an eating disorder, dude. And I get it. I've worked with a lot of people who have had those um, different kinds of eating disorders. And I would even say that I have... I ha- I wouldn't go as far to say as I had a disorder, but I mean I did a bodybuilding show and I used to be fat, like so for me restrictive eating definitely led down a path of negative uh, adaptations mentally and psychologically, and it and it definitely affected how I treated my body, how I treated myself, how I talked to myself, how I ate, but that's beside the point. What I would do is I would go four or five days of lifting like a bodybuilder. I would take the rest of the days off. I would add mobility into your work. So like basically you come to the gym, you do 10 minutes of mobility, and then you lift for an hour. And I would do probably five days of that, man, like do a push-pull legs, and I would go upper-lower push-pull legs. Or I would do something like I was talking about earlier, a six-day microcycle of upper-lower. So upper-lower, 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 or push-pull legs. So you have six days per quote-unquote week, but take rest days as needed truly listen to your bio- biofeedback. I think people are so afraid to do auto-regulated rest days that they get stuck into this, like, I have to lift five days a week. Well, if you feel like shit on day five, take a rest day. Your micro cycle, quote unquote, your training week, quote unquote, doesn't have to be Sunday to Sunday. It can be Sunday to Monday or Sunday to Tuesday, and that's okay. So for me, it changes all the time. I might go, lift, lift, rest, lift, 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 rest, or I might go lift, 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 rest, or lift, 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 rest, lift, lift, rest. I'm judging it by how's my family doing? How's my sleep doing? How's my work doing? How busy am I? Where am I mentally at? What is my workload right now? Okay, let that be the determining factor of when I take rest days so that I can actually stay alive and just thrive and, and have good energy. So I would do that, man. I would do five to six days of lifting on a seven to nine day training week I would um, do 10 minutes of mobility prior to your session, and I would cut out those mobility days, quote-unquote. I would take out your cardio day because you have plenty of cardio with 20,000 steps. Um, And for macros and calories, man, I mean, you're 154 pounds. You're doing 2,000 calories. I mean, right now it just depends. Like, okay, if you're maintaining your weight on 2,000 calories, add 10% so that, you know, 200 calories. Add 200 calories all via carbohydrates. So you should be consuming – I mean – if I like actually wanted to calculate this, so let's see here. I would say at minimum, you should be consuming probably 60 grams of fat, but you could push that up to 75 grams of fat. If you want to gain pure muscle, I probably wouldn't go over 75 grams of fat. I would probably be consuming at least 150 grams of protein, but probably like 1.2 times your body weight, just because as we increase calories, so probably 180 grams of protein, um, as we increase calories through carbs, you're going to be getting a lot of protein from things like oats and rice and potatoes and veggies and stuff like that, and I don't think that those are the most advantageous things for anabolism, uh, anabolism being anabolic, aka building muscle. Therefore, I would probably bump your protein up above body weight. So like. 180 to 200 grams of protein per day is probably going to be good for you. I would go 65 to 75 grams of fat. And then I would fill the rest of your calories with carbs inside that 2,000-calorie diet. And then I would create a 10% surplus, so 200 calories via carbohydrates. So you're basically adding, what is that, 50 grams of carbs to that, to whatever you're doing right now. Add 50 grams of carbs. Lift, like I told you. Go harder. Buy one of my programs because they're going to help you build muscle. Join the Boom Boom Elite. That's my shameless plug for the day. I highly suggest you join the Boom Boom Elite. Um, If not, Functional Muscle 2 is probably my favorite muscle building program that we offer. Um, And then just be patient, man, and let the muscle build. R underscore which has three questions. If I'm about to begin working a job where my sleep for about – okay, this is kind of weird. If I'm about to begin working a job – I'm going to change this – where I am only sleeping for about three nights out of the week, Oh, okay, hold on a sec. (laughs) My bad, which r underscore which says, if I'm about to begin working a job where my sleep for about three nights out of the week will consist mostly of a few hours of intermittent sleep, should I heavily adjust training volume to account for suboptimal recovery? Do you think strength and hypertrophy gains are still even possible given the limited recovery assuming nutrition is dialed in? So first of all, do you guys ever read something? If you guys, for those of you guys who don't record a podcast, you might not understand this, but sometimes I read questions out loud and I think about how they are sounding as I'm saying them versus how they will sound as I finish the sentence. Does that make sense? So, like, as I'm reading that, the first part of that doesn't make any sense, but if you actually finish the fucking sentence, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, I apologize for sounding like an idiot. So, should I adjust training volume to account for suboptimal sleep recovery? Yes. On those nights, you should drop volume, you should deload. What I would do is if your goal is hypertrophy, what I would do is keep volume, drop intensity. So you go in, you take a light day, so your RPE is lower, your RIR, reps in reserve is lower. So the intensity or the percentage of your one rep max is lower. You're not lifting as heavy with as much intensity load, but you are keeping volume just as high. So it kind of turns into more pump work. It's gonna be a little bit easier on your nervous system that way. um, And then you still get the volume in that you need in order to build. Do you think strength and hypertrophy gains are still possible given the limited recovery assuming nutrition is dialed in? Yes. But if three nights per week or out of the week will be a few hours of intermittent sleep, then what I would do is make your four heavy lifting days on the days where you get good sleep, plain and simple. The days where you get poor sleep, you go in, you do like walk on the treadmill for 20 minutes and do like a – uh, activation session, like just go in and do a little bit of core, do some like band curls and tricep extensions from lateral rages, just something to get a pump, like two sets of 20, nothing that's going to damage anything, but just enough to stimulate the muscle and you'll be fine. Um, I think you can also consider too, like banking on sleep. So if you know, you're like at the end of the week with those shitty nights, you only get 30, Eight hours of sleep, well, you're missing 11 hours of sleep, which means those four nights have to be nine hours, dude. Like, you got to get 49 hours a night a week. And you can get away with shitty sleep and still gain muscle and lose fat, but you're going to hit a plateau sooner. So I see two things that happen. Either A, a newbie gets great gains with low sleep, but once they hit a plateau and they want to break through to more advanced physique levels, they just need to get that sleep, plain and simple. Same thing with performance. Then I see other people who, um, will get to a really lean physique and they're stuck and they're like, I can't get rid of this last five pounds, this last three pounds, last one or two pounds, this last little bit of belly fat, this last one percentage of body fat, you need to get more sleep. And I would have you consider that if you got more sleep, your metabolism would speed up, your cortisol would lower, and your overall recovery would improve. Therefore, you could build more muscle because... One of the prime times to actually build and regrow tissue is during your sleep. Um, And if you did that, I can almost guarantee that you would break through and get to that leanest physique that you want to see. A lot of times that's what it takes. And I see people get so close to their leanest physique and that's the limiting factor. His second question, is intermittent fasting another diet tool for caloric restriction or is there some magic in the fasting window? If calories in versus calories out dictates weight loss or gain, then it shouldn't matter if I fast for 16 hours if I go and eat 500 calories above my surplus in the feed window, right? So I already answered this question um, in a previous question, or yeah, I already gave this answer in a previous question today, so I'm not going to go into intermittent fasting. But yes, you're right. Calories in versus calories out dictates weight loss. Um, and where you said you shouldn't, it shouldn't matter if you fast for 16 hours and gain eat 500 calories above surplus. Basically he's asking, can I add 500 calories above my caloric intake if I just fast first? The answer is no. Calories in versus calories out. Um, Unfortunately is the answer. And I say unfortunately, because I think people assume that us evidence-based practitioners like look at this and we're like, we want it to be calories in versus calories out. And I'd have you consider that most of us probably wish there was some secret. If I could just fucking fast every day and just be jacked, I would be super happy. And my clients would be get better results quicker and faster and more conveniently. So trust me, I want that. But the evidence just shows time and time again that fasting or not, it doesn't matter. Calories in versus calories out is always going to be, it's the one thing that nobody can really argue, right? There's all these debates everywhere with faster versus flexible dieters, keto versus flexible dieters, paleo versus flexible dieters and it always comes back to the flexible dieters winning simply because they have an argument that can't be broken and that's just calories in versus calories out. Now there's benefits to all these other diets don't get me wrong but when we talk about fat loss it truly does come into calories in versus calories out. Which might change a little bit in in an upcoming question so you'll see what I mean by that. His third question is 20 to 25 sets per muscle group per week the sweet spot for hypertrophy and strength gains as an intermediate to advanced lifter. I would say for most advanced lifters, yes, it is. I would say 15 to 20 is the sweet spot for most intermediate. And I would say 10 to 15 is the sweet spot for most beginners. Um, I think the whole fasting or the whole volume thing gets kind of carried away in both, both realms. Like I see a lot of people who are like, Oh, volume doesn't matter. Like you just got to train hard and recover harder. You don't want to drive cortisol too high from so much volume. Like, We never did that, and it's like, eh, I I doubt it because every successful bodybuilder trains with super high volumes. And if you look at every bodybuilder who has a dumb program, and we all know this, especially people in the space, they'll look at people who are just jacked, they get on stage, they do well in uh, competitions, and you're like, you don't even periodize, you don't use functional movements, you don't abide by all the rules, why are you so jacked? Look at their programs. They might be doing dumb exercises, they might be doing dumb things or not periodizing, but their volume is retardedly high. It's just insanely high all the time. Shouldn't use that word, but they use it all, it's always high. Crossfitters, why are some crossfitters so jacked? Their volume is stupid high. Like usually they have big quads, big traps, big shoulders. Why? Because they do a ton of clean presses, they do a ton of rope pulls, cleans, snatches, ton of trap work, carries, and they do a ton of fucking squats. All quads, all traps, all shoulders, right? hypertrophy, volume. Volume is the biggest predictor, but you don't need to go to like 40, 45 sets per week like some of these studies have shown. Um, Usually 20 to 25 sets, if you're not doing junk volume, is really good for advanced lifters. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of people count their volume and they take it to super high levels, but it's not truly good volume. I think if you collaborate volume with a true intramuscular and a neurological ability to fire, activate and execute a movement properly with the muscle. So truly activating a muscle to properly execute a movement, meaning when I squat, I'm using my quads. When I do lateral lases, I'm using my lateral deltoid. When I do face pulse, I'm using my rear deltoid. When I do shrugs, I'm only using my traps. When I do curls, I'm only using my biceps. When you can actually truly isolate a muscle, I think your need for high volumes lowers because you can distribute your volume better and you're not doing shrugs while you curl. You're not doing shrugs while you deadlift. You're not doing shrugs while you lunge, right? You're doing lunges, then you're doing shrugs, then you're doing lateral raises. So I do think volume doesn't need to be as high as some of these studies show. Um, if you execute movements properly and you have a good mind-muscle connection. However, I do think that 20 to 25 sets is a good range for most advanced lifters. I think that's the high end, that's a high volume program, but I think 20 to 25 sets per muscle group per week is a good sweet spot for hypertrophy um, with an advanced lifter. I think 15 to 20 is good for a intermediate and I think 10 to 15 is good for a beginner. Um, And I also think strength gains don't have nearly as much Value inside those numbers whatsoever. I think those numbers can all alter around for strength, because strength is going to be a bigger. Uh, it's going to be more determined by intensity. So, how often and how frequently are you lifting in the eighty to ninety percent rep range, or eighty to ninety percent of max effort rep range? So, basically, going closer to you one rep max. All right, Lince asked: There is there any truth? Is there any true science to eating for your DNA? What are your thoughts? A client of mine saw that there are those DNA tests that are supposed to tell you what to avoid and what to eat, part of your genetic makeup, and asked if they are true or BS. So I started looking into this, um, eating for your DNA. And this is where I kind of said, like, it's not just calories in versus calories out. So there's a few things here. First of all, any research and studies we have, the science on DNA and in, in genomes and, like, really going back into your genes and how your genes alter your gut and things like that, It's very, very limited research. This is such a new area and there's a ton of potential. Like this could be a very big breakthrough thing in the near future and it's exciting research, but there's not enough research already done to prove that it's a solidified way to determine how you should eat. So let me just put that disclaimer out first. There's not enough information, there's not enough research being done to say that this is for sure. Um, However, there's no real solid research showing that your DNA will determine if chicken is good for you, if sweet potatoes are good for you, so stuff like that, Like, right? We can't really take a DNA test and know that we have a food intolerance to this food. Even food sensitivity tests are kind of bogus for 90% of the majority of them. Um, but Knowing certain genetic markers uh, can help you decide other things. So like we know there's genetic markers for sleep. We know there's gen- genetic markers for caffeine tolerance. So whether you're a hyper-responder or a non-responder to caffeine, there's even genetic tolerances for creatine in being a non-responder. Um, there's also some that have been about keto. Um, so knowing certain genetic markers can actually help you decide if keto would work for you, if a high-fat approach would work for you. Um, I'm going to read this right here. This is from Johnny Bowden, PhD, is a legend in the nutrition space. The APOE2 gene, which uh, if you listen to like Dr. Rhonda Patrick, I believe she's talked about this a lot. The APO2 gene has a lot to do with how your body handles dietary fat. People with a certain variant of this gene are able to extract every bit of energy and nutrition from fat. Their bodies have all the pathways in place to optimally break down fat and their enzymes are functioning well. So when these folks eat fat, all is right with the world. Folks with a different variant of the APOE2 gene feel terrible on high fat diets. Knowing this, along with other genetic markers, might help you decide if you are a good candidate for a keto diet. And these variants may explain why some people thrive on such diets while others don't. So basically, what it is is, and this might have something to do with the gallbladder as well, because I know there's there's some variants or there's some people who have issues with their gallbladder They actually can't tolerate fat whatsoever. Um, but the point with this is, is there are there is a gene that shows your body might have the proper enzymes to proper u- properly utilize fat as fuel more effectively, um, whereas most people it's carbs. So there are some genetic testing that shows you might have a certain DNA strand or a certain variant of this APO2 gene, which is a part of your DNA, that allows you to utilize fat better. So keto might be good for you. And there's the same thing where you can take this test and it might say high carb is better for you. The problem with this is, is, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a huge article on basically how many shitty tests are out there to try to get this done. The reality is, is you have to go to like a few select research labs in the world. Like there's not many out there and it's very, very expensive and hard to do. So it takes time. It takes a lot of money and you have to travel. Um, I believe there's only one in the country. There's one in Canada. There's one in Israel, it looks like. Um, You have to go to these places to get these tests and it's very expensive. So to use gene testing uh, for most people listening to this podcast, it's probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to be able to, to know if you have this gene because there's not enough research out on it yet. So the ability to do the research on yourself is so limited and so hard to come across that it's probably not going to be a possibility for you. Um, So I would say that, like, you got to take it with a grain of salt. It's not something that I would put any weight into. Um, At the end of the day, you have to just try low carb, try high carb, and see what tends to work best with you. I wouldn't put any merit into these DNA tests yet because I don't think there's enough science to really prove that they work. Last question for today. This is from Unknown. It has to be unnamed. A nutritionist told me that protein interrupts the body's natural sleep cycle, so you'd want higher protein in the morning and lower protein in the evening, and that carbs give fuel for the sleep cycle to work, so you want a higher carb meal in the evening. Thoughts? So I have some thoughts on this. I did try to research anything that would come up on protein interrupting the body's natural sleep cycle, and I found nothing. In fact, I would argue that higher protein levels and more consistent protein levels throughout the day is actually going to benefit your sleep cycle because you're gonna have better recovery. When we have protein at every feeding, we have a higher muscle protein synthesis response, which is going to allow us to recover better. When we recover better, our nervous system is calmed down and it's easier to sleep. Add to that, protein is the most satiating nutrient. When we have frequent feedings, it has shown that not only is our metabolism healthier, but our body is more satiated and we are not as hungry. Guess what happens when you're not starving during the night? You sleep a lot better, right? Uh, When you diet, you can maintain hormonal function and muscular function and muscular tissue better with a high-protein diet, especially when you have frequent feedings of protein. What is that gonna lead to? Better sleep. So there's a lot of reasons, not directly but indirectly, that protein intake frequently, whether it's in the morning, midday, at night, or all of the above, most likely all of the above, is actually gonna help your sleep cycle. The next part of this, carbs give fuel for the sleep cycle. Um, I would argue that that statement doesn't quite make sense. So I think if he worded it as carbs give fuel for the sleep cycle, I don't think that's correct. He might've worded it differently. And this, so this isn't me hating on this at all, but I don't agree with that either. Um, I could see that the argument, like I mentioned earlier, if you have high carbs, you might be able to shut cortisol down a little bit. That might put you in a parasympathetic mode as far as your nervous system goes. And that might allow you to sleep a little bit better but you're not giving your sleep cycle fuel. Um, studies show that nutrient timing doesn't play a huge role at all. Just having carbs in your diet, period, is going to help sleep. Um, but I don't think you can fuel sleep. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't really work that way. Um, you don't fuel sleep. So, I think saying that carbs give fuel to the sleep cycle is just an incorrect statement, um, and I think that if you want carbs in the morning, you want carbs in the middle of the day, you want carbs at night, I don't think it matters because there's a, there's a few studies that go both ways. If your goal is fat loss, there may be some advantage to bunching your carbohydrates around your workout, so whether your workout's in the morning or in the afternoon, putting all your carbs towards that period of the day keeps insulin low on the other parts of the day, which is arguable if that's beneficial, but it also sends more carbs to an insulin sensitive time, which means you're gonna utilize more of those carbs. You're gonna again blunt that cortisol response around training, recover better, that could help sleep. But that could happen and they've shown this in studies whether you do it in the morning or at night. Doesn't really matter on the timing. And then the other argument with this is if your goal isn't fat loss, there's an argument to have carbs in every single meal because carbs with protein may possibly be more anabolic from a muscle protein synthesis and just a hormonal growth hormone response, but also you keep a steady level of insulin, which keeps a steady level of uh, that insulin keeping steady. uh, Having a steady level of insulin will more likely keep cortisol low constantly throughout the day. So if you're constantly having cortisol low, you're recovering better and you're most likely not stressed or wired, which is gonna lead to less tired and wired feeling at night. So my thoughts on this is uh, protein definitely does not interrupt sleep's uh, cycle. If anybody listen to this has a study to prove me wrong, I would love if you sent it to me. If I could read it, review it, I would bring it back up on the podcast, and I would admit that I am wrong. I just don't think that it's true, and I don't know of any research to show that. I haven't heard of any research to show that, and I'm a geek with this stuff, so I look up quite a bit, and I couldn't find anything when I looked this exact topic up. Um, and then last but not least, I don't think you can fuel sleep but I do think there is merit to say carbs in the diet can help you sleep better. I think cutting carbs can prevent you from sleeping, Um, but there's also research that shows it's more than likely just the fact that you're in a calorie deficit. It's not necessarily that you cut carbs because if you cut carbs and you increased fats, I would argue that your sleep wouldn't change because you didn't go into a caloric deficit. You stayed at maintenance or above. All right, guys, that's it for today. Remember is my birthday. I dropped a free ebook for you guys, the revamped and updated version of the Nutrition Hierarchy. I highly suggest you don't go download it. It's gonna give you all the answers you need to have better nutrition, to periodize your nutrition and have more sustainable success with the results you are chasing. It is in the show notes, so scroll down into the description, whatever platform you are listening to this on. Download it right now, completely free. On me, I just wanna provide value. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in.